As this episode comes out, the international climate negotiations known as COP will have happened many months ago back in November. COP27, the most recent summit in Egypt, was a pretty notable one because world leaders finally agreed to establish a fund to provide financial support for low-income nations that are suffering the effects of climate change despite doing very little, if anything, to have created the crisis. This is Climate Justice in Action. I share all this because in this episode, we'll hear from youth climate activist Aisha Sadika, who attended COP27. We spoke not long after she returned from Egypt, so COP is a big focus of our discussion, especially because a lot of Aisha's climate activism focuses on kicking polluters like big oil out of these negotiation spaces. The design of spaces like COP is why we're still here talking about climate change 27 years after they began. But COP is not all we talked about during our conversation. Aisha is also a poet, she's from Pakistan, and she writes from a place of grief and heartbreak for her people, for our planet. Her identity and lived experience guide her activism. She draws connections between the powerful and the vulnerable, reminding us of our collective responsibility to address climate change, especially given how little our elected leaders are doing. Aisha is not afraid to remind a room full of powerful people that her people didn't create this mess. She's always creating and sharing tools to help us clean this up by holding the powerful accountable. This is the Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Yesenia Funes. Hello, 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 everyone. I am here today with Aisha Sadika, who is a climate justice activist based in Coney Island, New York, where Superstorm Sandy tore through 10 years ago. Since then, she's focused her energy on climate justice. She's the co-founder of Polluters Out, a group focused on removing fossil fuel interests from climate negotiations. Aisha is also a poet and a damn good one. Welcome, Aisha. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. And thank good you for morning. having me. Thank you for joining us, for making the time. I know you're a very busy person and that you've had a long last couple of weeks. So really appreciate you coming through. When Yesenia asks, I show up. <laughs> Thank you, Aisha. As you all can probably hear, Aisha and I are both a little under the weather, so just bear with us. Um, we're giving you our like sexy, raspy voices today. <laughs> well, really excited to introduce you to our listeners and to talk a lot about your work with Polluters Out, um, your sort of journey. Um, we've been in touch now for, it's been a few years now. I don't know if it's been like three or four years yeah. um, or maybe it's, it's only been, maybe it's only been like two I'm trying to, I, I can't quite put no, my finger on it I think it's been longer I think it's been I was still in school when I first um, started like speaking with you on the phone or on the train <laughs> <laughs> always bugging you for those interviews yeah yeah and the first time we spoke, it was about Polluters Out, which mm -hmm. you had just kicked off. Um, you found, you co-founded this organization with other climate activists, Isabella Falahi and Helena Gualinga, with the hopes of making um, COPs. These are the you know climate negotiations that happen once a year. You're hoping to make them free of polluting industries. Can mm -hmm. can you introduce Polluters Out to our listeners? Let them know what you know sort of triggered its launch and where it's come so far. Yeah. 
So Polluters Out was triggered, uh, I suppose, because um, the year prior, my friends and I internationally within Fridays for Future had organized massive protests. And uh, those protests accumulated in a grand all nothing. Um, and uh, they were followed by the conference in Spain. And that conference was also full of fossil fuel lobbyists. In fact, it was sponsored by Iberdola and Indiza, uh, Spanish uh, oil companies. And um, in 2019, due to the lobbying influence um, much of Article 6 within Paris that um, focuses on autonomy of indigenous mm. peoples, uh, it was edited and rights were taken from them. And so th the COP that unfolded in 2019 was one of uh, anything but equity, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we formed polluters out was a it was so obvious to us as and and uh, as somebody who had been working internationally maybe for five six months only it was so obvious to me that the problem was where the money was coming from if you follow the money all the way back to 1992 the same people who had caused a problem were sponsoring this annual Coachella to solve it. <laughs> I love that. I love that description that y'all have is like COP as like this um, Coachella sponsored like festival where climate people come together, but nothing happens, right? Like nothing really changes. I mean, this yeah. year perhaps folks might, might differ a little bit there. And I'm curious to hear how COP27 went for you. I know that you had just gotten back and, um, you know, it sounds like it was an exhausting and intense two weeks <laughs> for the people who were there given yeah. the political climate in Egypt, but also yeah. given the political climate of the negotiations. Curious to hear how that went and mm -hmm. you know, whether you think things have improved since the years that you launched Polluters Out. You know, I'm curious about, to see, about the trends that you've been seeing and um, the overall culture at COP. Yeah, so uh, polluters out, we were quite successful last year in ensuring that fossil fuel interests did not sponsor the conference at the very least. By sponsor means like money that pays for the tables and the chairs and the pavilions. And that didn't happen last year. And they weren't, the names of the oil companies were not plastered all over the walls. This year was a completely different story. COP27 was, if if the year before was a Coachella, this was like a circus, frankly. <laughs> not only did you have, like, the second you landed in the airport to when you got off the plane was there greenwashing. And in the airport, at least, um, the greenwashing was coming from banks. Mm. Siemens Energy Company, Coca-Cola, Nestle, you name it. And then inside the conference, it was just like polluters galore. Um, there were more pol polluting lobbyists or representing representatives of polluting companies at this COP than there were last COP, than there were last COP. There were like 623, I think. And our campaign of pushing fi like the finance out 
has really it it came to a halt last year um and we weren't able to be as vocal act, uh, activists this year but also i think the campaign has kind of um began merging in with a larger campaign for fossil fuel non proliferation mm. um with adult organizations and and also seasoned activists and so um it is not just calling for formally it was calling for a conflict of interest policy within the UNFCCC the nations who make the UN and then the fossil fuel companies so a conflict of interest policy that would ensure that their money didn't sponsor the event now we're calling for a full out uh fossil fuel non-proliferation not just money not just the representatives but the investments and um it's really really going forward um tuvalu has signed on to it um i think vanuatu has signed on to it nation states are really mm. um uh, those that are island nations specifically right. those for who their life is on the line are signing on to the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty um and one of the clauses that we're pushing for within the treaty is what polluters out was asking for which was um conflict of interest but to your question about how cop 27 was in addition to it being polluters galore um i was in egypt for a month so i was there from october 20th to november 20th um wow that's a long time yeah <laughs> and um a lot of criticisms have come out of play right like why was the event held in egypt what about protest what about the outcomes and i think everything that we say has to be acknowledged with nuance mm, so formally yes, i love nuance <laughs> <laughs> the cops have been in europe and in global north countries or democracies if you would and people have come and they've protested and 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 they've made a lot of noise and what that protest and noise was met was was applause in the media mm. it was it was met with acknowledgments of bravery right i think it gets really complicated when you are in a nation with a authoritarian government but most of the world <laughs> lives like this mm. and it was a reality check for the negotiators it was a reality check for all of the global north activists it was a reality check for the politicians because this is a reality of so many countries of so many people who are on the front lines of the climate crisis. See, we categorize vulnerability um as proximity to maybe disaster as um percentages of how likely you are to be affected by said disaster. What we leave out time and time again is the vulnerability of citizens of unstable governments. And on top of that, the fact that those unstable governments do not care and i think the cop needed to be held in a place like this 
where if you walked out in the streets with four people, which happened, <laughs> and you stood in a place with a camera out, you were threatened with arrest, which happened to me and my friends. Um, that these negotiations that are happening in rooms that are so close from reality that don't understand the complicated, complicated political context of the nations that many people come from need to. And if we are going to try to save <laughs> life on planet, we need to work with and those governments too. Um, there was a victory of loss and damage finance fund mm -hmm. for the first time in 30 years. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I, I think uh, that big deal needs to be a little bit emphasized. So the way that negotiations happen, the way voting happened, the way policy happens is 192 governments have to agree. That's right. That's crazy. That means each word, each line, each stance in a 600-page document needs to be agreed upon. And then, and only then, is it established. That's why for the past 30 years, it's been a fight. There was always one country or two countries or three countries who vetoed it. Mm, we know who those are. But for, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sitting in one of them right now. But that changed, and that changed because of the pressure and allegiance and working together of the Global South, the island nations, against the most developed countries. And I applaud, I really applaud the activists, the negotiators from the island states, and the adults who work night in and out for this victory. Yes, and yeah, people were up every night until 4 a.m. Young people watching the negotiations would go home, go to sleep, maybe get three hours in, then wake up at 7 a.m. again, do a summary, and then do a day plan, action plan for the next day. Sit in meetings, sit in panels, go speak to the negotiators, go do campaigns, go do actions, and then it would start all over again. I and mean, essentially what y'all are doing is like lobbying, right? Like y'all are like lobbying in these spaces, trying to push what you want to see happen. Yeah. That shit's work. It's work. It's hard. It's like, um, I know the World Cup is being played right now. And there's so many games happening. Um, you are watching all of them. You're watching the scoreboard of all of them. All of the major game plays. You're turning, telling your team about it. Because you're against all of them. <laughs> you have to play against all of them simultaneously. And uh, life is on the line. So um, that was a victory. That said, I think um, it wasn't a full victory. And uh, because we're doing a cop summary, uh, it should also be acknowledged. For the past 30 years, the words fossil fuel, coal, and oil have not made it into the final text time and time again. And what that means is essentially, Nations are not acknowledging that f investing more in them is causing the climate crisis. And lack of said acknowledgement is paves way for them not 
um, reducing their carbon emissions fast enough. And so losses and damages just accumulate when you emit more carbon, when you keep pumping out oil. And right now, the finance facility is supposed to be home to $100 billion. If the way that we are going is left unchecked and unchartered for another five years, that $100 billion will become $400 billion, will become $600 billion. And there will come a time where they will have no money or to, to stop or, or, or put an end to the loss and damages if we don't put an end to the emission of fossil fuel in the first place. What it, it, it is, I think, an analogy I can, I can share to understand this problem is basically we were given an empty bucket in a flood. One empty bucket. And the tap is still wide open and water is being pumped out and we're given a bucket to like start taking that water out. Yeah. We need to close the tab. And we need a lot more than a single bucket. A lot more than a single bucket. <laughs> it's not going to be enough. And I want to make sure that we contextualize just quickly for, for the listeners um, for who might not be familiar with, with loss and jam- damage. This is the financial mechanism by which, uh, you know, wealthy... In, um, countries that have largely contributed to the climate crisis, their emissions, you know, our lifestyle here in the U.S., Canada, European nations, the ones that actually created the climate crisis, um, are paying funds into an account that will help support low-income countries that have contributed very little, if anything, to the climate crisis so that they can um, respond to disaster, adapt to prevent disaster, and overall have like a sort of safety net to you know, prevent such loss and damage in their communities. Um, and so it's been a really key mechanism to, you know, climate justice. Um, people have called this climate reparations, a form of climate reparations. There's, you know, many different ways of looking at climate reparations within the space, but um, this is one clear avenue there. Um, and so the fund has been established out of COP27, though the specifics of that are still quite unclear and my understanding is also that these the you know no country is going to be legally liable toward this and so <laughs> it's not yeah. as though they're actually required to put money into this um so we'll see <laughs> who actually will Denmark has already pledged money they were the first so kudos to to um Denmark but unfortunately um we haven't seen these these type of explicit pledges anywhere else yet um so we'll have to see how that plays out Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you were talking a lot <clears throat> just now, Aisha, about, um, you know, the different lived experiences of, of folks like in Egypt, right? Like the, the reality that people experience in different parts of the world and ensuring that people are being met where they're at, right? And that we have an understanding and a lens on that. And I think in general, lived experiences and this embodied knowledge is a big part of your practice. I think it's a big part of your advocacy. How is this translated in your work with Fossil Fuel University's educational practice? Could you um, briefly introduce that part of Polluters Out to our listeners and um, make those connections um, between lived experience and um, this educational practice? Yeah, so Fossil Fuel University is so close to my heart because it was a project that came out of like not being able to mobilize in person during the pandemic and um 
me and some amazing lawyers came together and we're like, okay, what would be the 101 tools that you would need if you were a young person trying to take on big old oil? <laughs> And we put together this free resource platform that has um, lectures from former negotiators within the UNFCCC, um, the EDs of major NGOs that we all know of, like Amnesty and Greenpeace, lawyers who have been working in and against um, their governments or the law to to um, change the course of, of climate change as we know it. And so many wonderful experts. Um, and then also people who have on-ground experience, as you were saying, Yesenia, um, people who have fought pipelines with their bodies. And uh, Fossil Free University is an amalgamation of all of that on lived experience and the importance of that, I cannot highlight that enough. I think that when people hear that an activist uses storytelling or their lived experience or advocacy from uh, a point of, of, of their lineage and their heritage, it is like taken as these anecdotes and perhaps these empty platitudes that don't translate into policy or change. And oftentimes I'm asked, um, you know, like, why, why are youth voices important? And why are indigenous voices important? Because mm -hmm. they, I think uh, from an empirical point of view, people don't think we can solve the problem with our stories. <laughs> but, but stories change hearts. Yeah, not only stories change hearts, but lived experience. And the urgency of that is the reason why we have a 1.5 degree mark is a, the reason why we have the words loss and damage and then they were developed into a facility and that facility has had work been done on it for 20 something years is the reason why we have um rights of nature and there's just so i can start listing so many policies mm. but that is all due to the experience of the island states the experience of indigenous people and also their advocacy, er, the language that we are taking for granted, the policies that we are taking for granted did not come um, without people fighting to the tooth and nail to keep their stories alive. And I know that a lot of your work focuses specifically on the stories of, of you and your people, right, um, Aisha? Your own roots are in a tribal and native community um, in Pakistan called Muchiwala. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm -hmm. And Pakistan in particular, right, played a major role at COP. I know that it was leading some of the delegations there um, after its devastating floods this year. I mean, record-breaking, unprecedented, 30 million people affected in Pakistan this year. I don't know that we've seen anything like this uh, thus far. And mm -hmm. scientists have already attributed this to climate change, right? Mm -hmm. You have a, a personal and a familial connection back home to polluted waterways, and you currently live here in, in Coney Island, Brooklyn, which has experienced its own, um, you know, severe flooding. Talk to me about water systems and, mm. in general, just your connection to water, how you see this playing a role 
in your fight for climate justice, but I'm also thinking about the sort of terrifying, violent nature that water can have, right, in, in mm. the face of climate change. Like there's a sort of like yin and yang, I think, that comes out of water. Um, and, and really curious to hear your relationship and your perspective on that. It's interesting to me because I moved oceans away from an area that was um, being affected by water pollution. Uh, And I still found myself in proximity to disaster. Mm. And if that can tell you that anything, it's that vulnerable communities in the global north and vulnerable communities in the global south especially when they're marginalized within their own country's political landscapes, live very similar realities. And it is because of race, class, and gender. So Pakistan is a young nation. It has made a mark worldwide, and its development has had to do a lot with it especially our rivers. So we are home to the oldest, one of the oldest rivers on planet Earth, the Indus. It is also home to some of, one of the first civilizations on planet Earth, the Indus people. Indigenous peoples that live on the, alongside the Indus River are still alive. And it's, um, One of the misnomers and miscommunications that they're dead and they're gone. They're still alive. They're as old as the ancient Egyptians, as old as the Mayans and the Aztecs in the Americas. And Pakistan's waterways, if I think if you want to understand this country's landscape and all of the potential issues around around equity take a look at its rivers and its waterways. So all of the major rivers in Pakistan actually come through India. Hmm. And history is important here because there was a separation. It was a bloody separation. And land was divided by colonizers. Like Land was divided by the British and handed over. So because our waterways are... are not only connected, there is no land barrier between those countries. It is controlled oftentimes by the Indian state. And we experienced flooding this year. We experienced an abundance of rain, but the country has gone through a dry spell before that. So the heat waves that predated the flooding, I think, um, were not given as much attention. Oh, yeah. And also, like, um, they are 70% of the equation, and that kind of suffering paved way for this, fl- this like, disaster of a flood. But we went through heat waves of unprecedented scale as well, 122 degrees Fahrenheit, wet bulb temperatures of 104 degrees, 107 degrees, lasting for seven hours, eight hours, 14 hours. Even the nighttime, like there's no escape. There's no escape. And when you live in a rural community like my family does, and you still depend on wells for water, 
you uh, have a generator, one generator for your whole house that brings electricity. When and then there's load shedding, which is another major problem in the country. Um, and there's no electricity for 16 hours. You don't have a fan. You don't have an air conditioning. You don't even have running water to combat the insane heat. On top of that, I, I began t- talking to you about like the waterways, why that is important. We because we are a young nation, because we industrialized, what we ended up depending on were dams. Mm. Dams are a use and source of energy. But in the context of Pakistan, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Reason being, the dams that were built in the early 70s and then 80s were coal-powered in the 90s, were coal-powered. Only recently, they're like a combination of hydraulic energy and fossil fuel. But they, in for my community specifically, they they polluted our water and caused illnesses that we could not come back from. So there was a dam built in 93, and then I think there was a dam built in 2005, or the, sh- the beginning of a dam being built in 2005 around the River Chenab in Punjab. Uh, around my village in Motibala, and it released chemical toxins into the water. Uh, it it caused polio and appendicitis and wow. blood cancer and you name it, and illnesses that had not reached or touched this part of the community are now running rampant. And I lost one family member after another. Neighboring tribes um, not only lost their land to the creation of the dams, they also got ill. There were kidney diseases. And this, this, became, this is very much uh, the reality of so many like rural communities in the country that are still, to this day, undeveloped, underdeveloped, underfunded, undereducated, you name it. And the thing that is supposed to bring energy to them are the creation of these dams. And then the earlier fact that I was alluding to, our water is controlled by India. Sometimes our water, our rivers start running dry and Pakistan is having, after these floods, we're having a dry spell all over again. Our freshwater sources are running dry and then the dams don't work in full capacity. And it creates a whole other mess. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming after all, like the monsoon rains and the severe floods, there's also water contamination going on, right? Like all these waterways went into people's homes, sewage, animals. Just thinking of all of the the mixing that goes on during any type of flooding event, and how harmful that can be for um, groundwater, freshwater, um, and the time that that takes to sort of make its way out of the of the system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then there's and now, of course the disease right that also breeds in the water yeah and and take uh like if we want to narrow down from an aerial view take a rural community um like mine for example you there's no um sewage ways right there they've been destroyed there's no pathways they've been destroyed so the water has nowhere to go and all the feces, all the animal dead that have been like rotting inside the water, the mosquitoes that have sat accumulated, 
there's no getting removing that and if you do start process of removing you toss it back into the river and that water go and it just corrupts and and pollutes the waterway too and 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 the um the government or the army or the police has not come they haven't come in months they came in in the very beginning helped people get out get got them to safety but they they haven't come to get rid of the water and in areas where you've been lucky and water has evaporated after it sat on the soil for weeks and an end let's say you're a farmer your crop is destroyed but worse than that your soil is destroyed people forget soil is a living organism as well or full of living organisms absolutely and the country is 30% of its gdp relies on agriculture we are an agricultural country we make we provide cotton rice grain and sugar those are our main exports um and the soil is now concentrated with nitrogen phosphorus magnesium at the very top the animals are in it have been killed and those that are still surviving are, are not all conducive to to a environment that's going to allow you to grow a crop so you have to pillage and like revitalize the soil um and you have nothing that is a reality of so many farmers and people and rural and tribal people in the country and disease yes anya it is it is harrowing when i was at cop i met with two doctors both who are in pakistan on ground in the region of sindh and both of them broke down explaining to me how horrific it has been for young women and women in general because so we had a expectancy of 65,000 women who were supposed to give birth during the flooding and many died on the bed um because they their bodies didn't have enough hemoglobin to support the childbirth of of their babies and babies died and that was like stage 1 because poverty hunger flooding then no lack of food for days at an end and being stranded then you give birth in a tense tense environment you you pass away your child passes away and then give it three three more weeks and now dengue has spread like wildfire malaria has spread cholera has spread and it's spread to uh children whose immune systems cannot fight it newborns in these hospitals that were just created out of sheer necessity at the very last minute they are too tense and the babies have cholera and it is just um and we don't have beds we don't have drips we don't have blood food is getting more and more expensive pakistan just went through a inflation like never before I repeat if 100 was equivalent to $1 now it's at like 200 something or 300 something. So oh, wow. if yeah and the front line is no longer firefighters it's no longer like police officers or the military the front line are doctors. They are fighting every single day 
to keep people alive. I, you know, I think it's easy to like put the stuff out of your mind when the stories stop circulating in the headlines, but it's important for, for folks to remember, you know, even, you know, January, February, when people will hear this episode that there's still suffering happening, right. In places like Pakistan that experienced, um, these climate disasters months ago, like the disaster doesn't go away after the rains stop or after the floods recede. Mm-hmm. Um, the disaster continues. And that's, I think that's almost what's the scariest thing about climate change is like, it it doesn't just go away when the weather calms down. Like the sun can be shining and things can feel fine again in that sense. But there's all the, the aftermath and the years long impacts. Um, Poetry, I I think it's quite fitting to to talk a little bit about your poetry work because I understand it's been a big part of like your processing and healing, a big way to sort of grapple and communicate and process um, all of this grief and all of this emotion. Um, Talk to me about poetry as a tool, um, both as an individual, you know, as understanding the collective and processing this loss. How has poetry um, helped you navigate all this? Yeah, um, poetry has been my personal, like, band-aid, I suppose, some solace. Um, and it it's deeply important to me because I came from a rural tribal community in metropolitan New York. And I, for the longest time, didn't know how to communicate. <laughs> uh, learning English was English is like my fifth language. It was a whole, it was a whole process, and I, I was a reader as a kid, uh, fantasy fiction, and I stumbled upon poetry, and um, it, I felt very intimately connected to it. Intimately because um, it feels like a connection back home, back to my people. Mm. We are an oral storytelling tradition i was raised with stories on songs um they were the the importance of protecting the river and the water and land was embedded in my nursery rhymes um and um like my education really was and it was also why i was I had a lot of trouble in the U.S. because I grew up with so many elders and family and just constantly learning from them. So I use it to, in times of extreme climate anxiety or stress, I use it to find my way back home. And also I use it to express all of the frustration because... Um, using this kind of col- like I know it's I I, I I write poetry in English I use a colonial language but it's my way of piercing that colonial language and trying to get at the heart of things um, it's my way of breaking the f- structures of the English uh, grammar mm. and trying to communicate a truth that is universal um, I I write with broken grammar on purpose. I write um, like I would be speaking Saraiki, my dialect, and I translate it into English often. And um, it, yeah, it comes from a place of like 
making up for for a language barrier that I've had forever <laughs> in in the U.S. in colonial um, structures all across climate work. You know, I've been asking everyone to come to the show with a quote they want to share to to wrap up every episode, but. I'd really love for you, Aisha, if you're willing to share a piece of one of your poems, um, just because your your writing is so beautiful and it's so visceral. Um, would love for you to share some of that with our listeners today, if you'd be so generous. Thank you. I would be happy to. I wrote this for my sister um, and my cousins and also for so many young uh, Native tribal Aboriginal women who are trying to reconnect to their histories um, that have been erased. Um, And it's called Two Little Feet and Big Uprisings. If you find yourself waiting for the birds to go quiet, if your legs dangle like sunflower heads every morning after you wake, If September doesn't make you want to coddle the day with both of your hands, if you've taken more hits to your name than you can hide, if tomorrow comes and goes, comes and goes, and your heart is sick, I've still got some best of me left for you. You can always find me where the skies are blue. Wow. I love that. It's like a love letter um, of sorts. Thank you so much for sharing that, Aisha. Well, with that, we will wrap up today. But Aisha, thank you so much for your vulnerability, for your poetry and your words, and you know, for this education and keeping it so real, always schooling everybody. I think that we all <laughs> need to hear these hard truths. We don't talk about it enough, you know. Um, it's so easy to like shy away from like death and grief um, and the way that you're so willing to, you know, ha- confront these hard things. Um, it's necessary. It's necessary that we talk about the hard things and talk about the bad guys and, and point our <laughs> fingers and do something about it. Um, no, but for real, you know, so thank you so much for, for doing that work. We need. Thank you so much, Yesenia. After all this time, still hearing me go on tangents and letting me <laughs> go on tangents. It's the best part. <laughs> All right, Aisha. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing is a podcast of Revisions, a media initiative supported by REARC Institute, a philanthropic organization committed to supporting architectures of planetary well-being. For more information on REARC, please visit www.rearc.institute. This season is hosted by Yesenia Funes. For more information on her work, you can follow her online at YesFun, Y-E-S-S-F-U-N, and her work, The Front Lines, at Atmos Magazine. This podcast is produced by Mina Kwan and Andy Christians. Music by Inatlas. Atlas.